Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast Who Am I? Today I will interview my good friend Dr. Cade Roundy from Texas and our topic will be socialism. Today's topic I would like to be something around socialism. Um, I just ordered a book recently uh, by Richard Wolff with two F's. He's an economist that I like to listen to. Um, not the usual Ivy League economist who thinks he knows exactly how everything runs, but someone who actually talks to regular people to find out how it works for them, not just top down. Um, and just over time, I've, I've learned to, to trust him. And so he, he wrote several books uh, and I ordered the one called uh, Understanding Socialism. And I think it's especially pertinent in Amer for Americans because they have, or in America, I feel the meaning of socialism has changed a lot uh, from the, let's say, 30s and, and then again in the, um, oh no, yeah, especially the 30s because that was when the depression hit, right? And then this, this Professor Wolf says that a lot of um, unions came together and organized and the socialist and communist parties of America came together to put a lot of pressure on the president. I forget his name right now. Roosevelt. So I, I'm sketchy on the details. Um, and if I recall correctly, President Roosevelt, Franklin, yes, FDR, that's Ronald Roosevelt, mm -hmm. and Eugene, Eugene Debs, Eugene D. Debs, I think was the, socialist or communist party um, I think he was a big person but I, I, I don't yeah. know my history very well no th that's about all I know as well I, I recognize the name Debs but I, I wouldn't be able to place him um, I just wanted to remind any Americans out there listening um, that America does have a socialist history you don't have to go to East Europe or um, China or Cuba, uh, but, but those things are not the same anyway. So could you help differentiate between different meanings of socialism or the difference between socialism and communism? Because a lot of people just use them interchangeably. Yeah, the, the thing that's hard is I had a discussion with my brother a couple of years ago, and he wanted to boil it down to who controlled the means of production. And as I started to Google this, I realized that people with, you know, applicable PhDs in the areas didn't agree totally on themselves. And there were a lot of different facets and, and wrinkles over time. And, you know, as I kind of looked at Russia, I realized that Stalin's polity was different than Lenin's. And, mm -hmm. you know, by the time it got to Gorbachev, it was different than it was in Stalin. It was something that had evolved over time. In America right now, I think that when people talk about socialism or communism, I think that you're right, they do get conflated quite a bit. And I think that um, even fascism gets thrown in there mm -hmm. a lot. And I, I think that when people hear any of those terms, it's almost become a dog whistle for a more totalitarian government mm -hmm. rather than uh, just a, a control system rather than an economic system. 
frankly. Yeah. I, no, that's what I gather from American media as well. Um, yeah, so one of the reasons I, I thought this topic would be good for us is because you can maybe um, comment or confirm the, the notions that I have of American politics, uh, since I can only claim to have lived in America for three weeks, and that's it. <laughs> um, nice. But since there's so much American media, um, I'm more familiar with what Americans think than most other countries. Um, I follow it more closely than German news even. Um, but obviously uh, I'm aware of lots of Western European countries being totally used to uh, social democracy, what Bernie Sanders calls democratic socialism. <laughs> um, yeah. I like to differentiate between those two as well, but okay, what the heck, uh, if that's uh, what, what most Americans call it by now, I, I can go along with that. Well, I don't even know what that means, right? Because I'll, I'll, you know, you get on Twitter and everybody says, you know, well, true socialism is true socialism has never been tried. And then, you know, yeah. obviously somebody after that says, well, just look at Venezuela, yep. you know, and then it, it, you know, and then the next one is, well, look at, you know, the Nordic countries, uh -huh. you know, socialism <laughs> seems to be working well there. And, you know, like I said, it's it's really confusing for me because I don't know you know, at what point, you know, having a social safety net, you know, like social security income for seniors and maybe having a national health care or, yep. you know, some sort of indemnity help for people who fall behind or run into misfortune, you know, versus, you know, everybody's going to have just a universal basic income and the machines are going to run everything. <laughs> Good. Uh... Yeah, you, you touch a lot of points that I, I also think are important for this topic and that I keep hearing in, in American media. Um, so in Europe, what, what a lot of Americans love about Europe, or, or especially the Nordic countries for some reason, is social democracy. And, and that means we have more programs than the US um, for healthcare, um, for when you lose your job, what's that called? Unemployment insurance. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how Americans just say unemployment. Like, I claimed unemployment or I'm on unemployment. <laughs> but what they actually mean is the yeah. benefits, right? <laughs> um, yes. And so we, we have a more expansive program like that. And yes, uh, a lot of people on the right will, will call that um, overreach by the state or big government, terms like that. Um, but we like the benefits and maybe we're just used to paying a lot more taxes, you know, in the, in the forties, 45% or, or even more, um, so that we just don't, um, think it's crazy since it's been that way for, I don't know, maybe a hundred years. I, I'm not sure on the history, but that's, that's very much normal in, in Europe. But for a lot of Americans, it's crazy. What, what is normal for uh, American employees to pay in taxes, like 25%? So it's a progressive tax system. And I think that if you are a family of four that makes probably less than $60,000 a year, you don't pay any national income tax. Mm -hmm. There's still um, a social security tax. 
I mean, there's still gasoline tax, there's still sales tax, there's still state and local taxes a lot of times. And I, I don't know how much those get paid. Um, or, you know, I don't know if, how progressive those are. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the sales tax, the more you buy, the more regressive it is. But is sales tax what you pay on top of the value of the food and stuff you buy? Right. And so that usually is um, anywhere from, I, I think there are maybe a couple of states that have lower sales tax. Mm-hmm. I think in Texas, we don't have a state income tax, but our property taxes are higher and our sales tax is 8%. So every $100 of groceries or gas or, or whatever, you know, it's an extra $8.25, I believe. And so um, the 8%, top... 8.25% or? I, yes, I believe yeah. so. Okay, got it. And got then um, the top marginal tax rate... Uh, federally, I think is 30, maybe 35, 30. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there, but it's in the 30%. Okay, in the 30s uh, for uh, employees, yeah, on, on your in- income? Or, yes. sorry, what was that? You that, said that there's no national income tax? Yes, that'll be your federal income tax. Okay, got it. Um, and then I remember when Trump lowered the corporate tax or mm-hmm. I'm not sure about yes. the, the name, uh, from 35 to 21%. Um, so that was a huge leap. Um, yeah. Our sales tax so is 19%. And uh, I, I also was surprised to see in, in American supermarkets that the sales tax is not, in, it's not shown explicitly on the labels on the food. No. So that was, um, I felt, lied to or I felt tricked <laughs> because I'm just used to the, the price, the full price being shown. After mm-hmm. all, that is what you pay in the end. So I don't know, it, did you, have you just developed an intuition for what it means to pay 8% more than what it says? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a lesson that even my kids learn, right? They five or six and they want to go to um, a store Target is a big store in America. They want to go to Target and they see a toy that's $4. Well, it's $3.99. You know, and they're like, Dad, I have $4. And, and I say, well, taxes. And I don't know. It takes a little while for that to sink in. But I also, at home, whenever they have candy or something, I walk up and I say taxes and I take some. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, here, here we don't think a lot about taxes because um, your employer withholds all the taxes that come out of your income. Um, and like the labels in the supermarket, that makes a difference of your consciousness of taxes. Also, your health insurance is withheld. Um, the employer pays half of it, you pay half of it. Mm-hmm. And then if you bother to, you can claim whatever you pay too much in taxes, uh, you know, in spring of the next year. And so sure. a lot of it is automatic. And I think that's a big reason why we don't complain as much about, um, about um, taxes. I, I'm getting some feedback, but not, not most of the time. 
Yeah, that's, I think that's fairly accurate. And that's actually pretty sim quite similar to what happens here. You know, you file your taxes in the spring every year. And if you've overpaid, then you get a refund. If you've underpaid, then you have to pay back. Okay. And so for my business, you know, I pay half of the employees healthcare, they pay half. Um, we withhold um, their social security taxes and I pay half, they pay half. Mm -hmm. And um, trying to think what else. At any rate, like I said, very similar. Okay. Now, um, another thing that people on the left like to bring up is that police, fire departments, garbage uh, collection, um, what else, the sewage, all of that is paid for by everyone or, or roads, right? I'm not sure exactly mm -hmm. which funds come, like which projects are funded by which taxes, um, but the masses pay for these individual services that everyone benefits from. But people often feel cheated when they benefit less from a service than other people. And so they feel like they're paying for other people, like say they are more healthy or they don't uh, drive as much. And, and so they, they feel like they should pay less for using the roads. And I can kind of understand that. But let's maybe take um, the view of insurance on this. This helped me a lot to understand it. Uh, I watched a documentary called um, The Ascent of Money. And it started in, I don't know, way millennia ago and then spent a lot of time in the Middle Ages and how we got to today. And um, it was part of the, the nation building process, right? Of, of people being a society and how they were solidarity. Like, I mean, they had solidarity and they were there for each other. I mean, this is the, the, the concept anyway. I'm not saying this is how it works in practice, but um, an insurance is where everyone pays in and the people that need the service, like the healthcare, take it, get the money from the fund that everyone paid into, right? So for some people, that's a, they consider it a safety net and other people think, why should I pay for someone else's uh, needs or use of healthcare or other services? Is that a, a helpful picture? Like, does that put things in perspective? Yes, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I've thought quite a bit for myself, you know, what if I were to run for office, what would I propose vis-a-vis -vis taxes, right? What is actually the fair way so that, um, that people are paying a just tax, not necessarily an equal tax, but a just tax, right? And I think that, you know, these things, since Trump changed, or, you know, since the tax structure was changed during Trump, um, one of the things that happened was that he started dis or, well, he or what part of the law was that it disallowed the, uh, let me say this, the write off of state and local taxes. And so there are, um, you know, the more urbanized coastal states 
have a lot more population density. They have, they tend to have had larger social nets and they have a lot higher local taxes. But when it came to the federal taxes, people in those states could write those off and, um, you know, get a break from mm -hmm. it, right? And the states got more of the money. And one thing that happened was that the middle states, which tend to be more of the Republican states rather than the Democratic states, uh, I think they had always complained, like, why should, you know, they get to write these things off? It doesn't benefit us. And yet, you know, it's hard to know who's benefiting where because some of the red states are net takers mm -hmm. from the federal treasury or I don't know, not treasury, I don't know, from the federal government, yeah. whereas a lot of the blue states are net contributors. And, it, you know, it's like, I think you're right. As far as insurance, you know, if I was blessed to be skinny and, you know, diabetes is a huge problem in America, obesity is a huge problem. Um, smokers, you know, people with smokers are, are a huge burden to the national health care. Right. I, I think that you ask the right questions. Who who should pay more for lifestyle choices, right? For choosing to live in these urban centers. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't know the right answer. Yeah. It's to, it's very complex. I was I would, I've always thought that if we taxed consumption rather than production, that might be the most fair, but I don't know. Uh, whereas right now it's a mix of both, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if everything should be about taxes. Obviously, uh, that's a big topic and um, it affects everyone. Um, but I also like to see things in solidarity. I mean, through the lens of solidarity. So um, a nation or I, I'm not sure how, how American identity works since states uh, work differently from the 16 German states, and they also work differently from the European states. So I'm not sure I can, I can um, translate Europe, the European situation to the American situation, but there's some kind of joint identity, right? Some kind of camaraderie and feeling of community throughout the whole country, I would assume, so that you feel um, closer to them, closer to Americans than to I don't know, Brazilians, for example. And at, at least this is what I hear from some people. Other people will say I'm a world citizen. I don't feel closer to any person just because they have the same citizenship as I do. Well, am. I'll say this. I, I yeah. think that, that you're right, I, it, but it's hard to know. I, I think that of all the places I've been, you know, America is, is extremely diverse. At least we talk about ourselves as a melting pot where we, you know, traditionally have had a lot of cultures assimilate over time. Not that there hasn't been problems, you know, I, I mean, there's definitely, um, I don't know that racism is the right word, but like when the there was a wave of Irish immigration, Greek immig immigration, you know, right now it's Mexican, uh, South American immigration. Um, I think that, you know, when, when times are harder, you know, those differences 
tend to get pointed out. Um, right now, a lot of President Trump's, um, a lot of his vitriol is pointed towards China, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that a lot of people look at China as, you know, a cause of the loss of our manufacturing base to some extent. So I don't know. I, I mean, that seems to unite a lot of people. <laughs> the, the common hatred of someone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and after 9-11 or, you know, September in 2001, when the World Trade Centers were hit, the World Trade Center towers were hit, uh, there was a lot of, I hate to say nationalism because that implies something else, but there was a great national sentiment you know, that I, I, that I hadn't ever seen before. There was more of the solidarity mm -hmm. I think that you're talking about. There was, um, people really put aside a lot of differences for, for, for some time. Um, as the war in Iraq dragged on, that really kind of divided us, divided us again. And uh, President Obama, uh, yeah, President Obama and President Bush, um, whatever, their strengths and weaknesses were individually, the, the country seemed to get a lot more polarized underneath them and, and especially so under President Trump. As to the topic of wars and whether they should continue or not? Uh, just, just generally, I, I think that war was one of the big things, um, but it, it socially, culturally, right? Like um, how do we deal with, with immigrants with South American immigrants, you know, uh, um, how do I say this? There, there's a, a belief that many of them are coming here illegally, mm -hmm. you know, and it's um, kind of a strain, can be kind of a strain socially, economically. Um, I mean, one of the things that we had a, a Supreme Court case here in, well, I think it was like 1972. It was Roe versus Wade, and mm -hmm. it legalized abortion. And yet, um, abortion in presidential debates is still a litmus test. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're a Republican, you know, you, you cannot be pro-choice and expect to be elected. And opposite for the Democrats, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, so war, abortion, health care, you know, whether um, Obama, I mean, it became called Obamacare, you know, that our move toward a more universal healthcare situation. And it's uh, pretty divisive right now. Um, Trump, everything about President Trump is divisive, <laughs> <laughs> as you can imagine. But. Yeah. I imagine a lot of that comes from his experience in the media from before, where he knows that controversy uh, increases ratings, and that's a lot what he cares about personally. <laughs> um, but obviously, he's not just a clown. He also has uh, plenty of people around him who uh, make decisions that can be uh, that can cause a lot of um, division among the people. Um, so tell me this, William. Do, hmm? do you think that Otto von Bismarck was a genius who? you know, had everything planned out ahead of time and he was just moving pieces on the board 
as he consolidated Germany, or do you think that he just happened to be an opportunist or lucky or? So I know very little about him. I just heard about him in history class as a teenager. And did he come from Prussia? I don't know where exactly, I, I believe. I don't yeah. Know. It, yeah, I just remember hearing that he united Germany, but uh, sometime later I heard that it was by force. <laughs> and it kind, kind of makes me uh, think that unity is usually created by force. Like China is extremely diverse, but the people were just forced to become one nation and to all uh, speak the language of the capital where the power emanated from. Um, and yeah, Germany was a hundred countries or more. And so I, from what I know, Bismarck just brutally forced everyone to be under one government and under one law. Yeah, I, I just only ask because one thing that I don't know is, you know, I, I listen to some of our politicians and I just don't think that they're very bright mm -hmm. sometimes. And I, and I think, God, are they really just opportunists? Are they really, mm. you know, these evil geniuses who are playing four-dimensional chess <laughs> while I'm playing checkers or something, if that makes sense? But I don't think the presidents themselves uh, are the smart ones. Um, I am open to believing that there is a deep state um, with, you know, who are the people with the actual power and who make decisions independent of who is the president and, and which party is uh, in the White House. Yeah, so, I mean, Angela Merkel, she, she has a PhD, doesn't she? Isn't she very smart? I thought her PhD was in some life science i think chemistry i thought it was chemistry or physics or yeah so, one of the hard science obama was a lawyer I, th I think he was intellectual yes i think he was intellectual as far as um being somebody that was well i don't know i, I don't <laughs> i don't know who is really smart i, I mean bill clinton was a Rhodes scholar mm -hmm. and george bush went to ivy league universities as well as Obama, and yet, I don't know, sometimes I think that perhaps with Ivy League universities, it's who you know. Yeah, I mean, wasn't there two years ago this revelation that rich kids have it a lot easier to get through college and uh, into Ivy League schools? I don't know, it, it could be, I, I missed that, but um, at any rate, I was, I was just saying that, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand German politics well enough, but I don't know what the Austin counselor, you know, how much running she does of Germany day to day, right? For all I know that Angela Merkel runs Germany all by herself from what I see on the <laughs> right? But I assume it's a lot more complex than that. She, yeah, her, her words have a lot of power. Uh, she goes to those meetings uh, in the EU Council and other, um, what are they called, G20s? Yeah. Those, we call them Gipfel, um, summits, that's the word. But in, but in German, it actually starts with the G, so I wonder what language the G comes from. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe geopolitical, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, um, when she's on TV, she has a lot of power. I don't know what it is like behind the scenes, but she's the one who addresses the people and tells them to stay at home right now, for example. Okay. So, uh, all right. Well, I know this is not about German politics, but I, I just found it fascinating. What the, one of the differences that always struck me is that we have basically two parties here. I mean, you have libertarians, you have green parties, you have um, communist party. Have, party. Yeah, they're all they're all um, a little bit fringy as far I mean, just as far as popularity. I don't mean their ideas. Not their policies. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, they might or might not be. I, I'm not informed well enough to say, but um, for all intents and purposes, we have two parties mm -hmm. and um, you know, they, they seem to mutate and whatever is politically expedient, you know, that seems to be what they grab, gravitate toward. Um, whereas in Germany, one of the things that always struck me was the, the multiplicity of parties, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the idea of coalition building and um, team building and um, seemed a lot more uh, complex and intense and, you know, you had to had to uh, compromise a lot more yeah. if you wanted to lead, right? You had to accept a lot more uh, variability into your platform, I, I assume. Yeah, and that has pros and cons. Obviously, if one party has the power, then they can push through more, and that might be a good thing, or, or they might abuse their power. And so if you think that parties by themselves abuse their power, then coalitions are good because the other one has more of an ability to keep them in check. Um, I mean, that's what several parties are for anyway, or should be, and also multiple chambers. Um, but there are countries that have even a lot more <laughs> parties. We have maybe five big ones that are represented in the parliament um, constantly. But I think Italy has maybe 30 or so that you could, that actually got significant votes and then three or more of them had to build a coalition. Um, hmm. in, in Iceland, I think they have maybe not that many, but there, there are various systems throughout Europe of how government is structured. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It makes you wonder how the European Union can work at all, because there are a lot of things that they have to um, uh, become unified on. Some votes have to be unanimous to lead to anything so that's pretty crazy so one thing that has been interesting to me is um you know do you feel like uh where i mean is it the hague where that's, where is the head of the european union I, I i believe the hague is the court but yeah it's distributed the, the hague has the court strasbourg has something but brussels is mostly known for being the center of the european union Okay, uh, the parliament is there. At least I visited a, a museum there once <laughs> that showed most of the bodies are represented in Brussels. Okay, that, that makes more sense. But the um, banks are in Frankfurt. <laughs> that is pretty cool. I, I, I do think that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, as an outsider, you know, or sometimes on American news, you might see that it seems like it's maybe dysfunctional and that maybe Brussels is acting dictatorially to the various states in the EU or the 
Germany because they are the powerful economy. Maybe they are, uh, I don't know, bullying a little that's, bit. Or that's what a lot pushing. of people. That's what a lot of people in England think. Um, you know, those who voted to leave the EU. But mm -hmm. I actually think that Germany is the richest and most powerful country in the European Union, and therefore has a lot more say than the other countries. Um, for example, deciding to just lend more, more money to Greece rather than forgiving their debts or restructuring right. their debts. And so, um, yeah, I think Germany is can abuse its power, which is a lot of power at the moment. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, the thing is, is do you feel like that there is a European solidarity? You know, do you feel a brotherhood with the French, per se, or the Italians or, or the Swiss? Yes, yes, I do. Um, and I wonder if this is just because it's the uh, absence of fear. So people fear what they don't know. And so just because I'm more familiar with West Europeans, I probably feel closer to them than to anyone else. And because they have similar features than me. So I do think some of it comes back to the color of your skin and your hair, um, your economic status, stuff like that. If things are similar, then you feel closer to them. Kind of like the person you want to marry is often the person, I mean, speaking statistically, uh, for many people, the person they want to marry is often a person with similar features to them. And I think that's because they want to perpetuate their DNA in the next generation. So I think there are lots of different factors, not just political and economical, that play into this feeling of, of community and camaraderie. But intellectually, it doesn't make sense to me what I just said, that a European is somehow closer to me than anyone else in the world. I try to be a world citizen and consider every life uh, just as valuable as, as another. Sure. I was just curious. It was kind of a little sidebar there, a little tangent. I was just wondering, you know, if, if the EU had succeeded, I guess, <laughs> in making a more federalized system, <laughs> what I more of a coalition. You know, so uh, my feeling is that people um, have less problems with each other and are less divided. Uh, divided when uh, they just when they're off better economically. So like like you said earlier, when when people are poor, they like to scapegoat others and blame them for their economic problems. Uh, in the EU, Poland and Hungary have become pretty far right. Um, in Hungary, there was just a power grab recently, and they've become pretty totalitarian from what I've heard, but I'm not up to date on that. Uh, I'm sure some people are trying to protest, but it's pretty much a police state right now. Um, and that is, again, so that was just recently, uh, maybe a month ago or so, because the pandemic causes, caused the, economic, uh, the economy to weaken, and yeah. Same with, I don't know, the, the downsides of globalism or anything that just disrupts the, the flow of wealth to people in general. So in Germ inside Germany, the East has always been worse off ever since the Soviets. 
uh, had their influence on them. And you can still feel it today. I mean, there is a little tax called solidarity tax. I don't know if you remember this, that West Germans pay to increase okay. the infrastructure in the East. Uh, it's, it's a, for some people, it's a hot debate whether it should still exist or whether we can say that the East has caught up, but it hasn't in, in many ways. And so you will find extreme left and extreme right people in the East uh, demonstrate more, for example, or speak out more against the government. Just, and I believe it's because they are off worse economically. So that's an unfortunate pattern. And if you could just make sure that everyone is taken care of better, I think we would all get along better and be more open to cross-border solidarity, for example, or even open borders, but that's I don't know, too far away from what we have right now. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, so it sounds like you have similar issues mm -hmm. between our states, between, for you, East and West Germany. I mean, it was, it was stark. I, I, golly, I still remember, I mean, I guess it's been, 10 plus years, but you could definitely tell when you were going into East Germany mm -hmm. versus West Germany, right? And it was uh, like I was living in Russia again in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. or, or, I mean, it took me back to when I lived in Russia, mm -hmm. you know, in the 90s. I was like, oh, yeah, this is Soviet system. Um, I mean, that's the same thing in America. You can tell when you leave the cities and you get into... Um, there's an area of the United States called Appalachia. It's in the southeast, and there are mountains there. And there Arkansas? Are, yeah, Arkansas, West Virginia, mm -hmm. um, uh, parts of Virginia, Kentucky. Um, you know, it's just a lot poorer there. The history of a lot of the economy was sustained by coal mining, which is kind of going away yeah and they the manufacturing that they had um was leaving and so there a lot i mean just a lot of struggle there always kind of been poor and, and made fun of but yeah anyway yeah i wonder if the, the coastal areas in the u.s are more um affluent because of trade uh, across the oceans or if they are more open culturally, because there's a lot more coming and going of people. Um, for example, in England, it was similar. Uh, let's see, when it came to Brexit, the people in London, you know, the, the, the business people who know how much uh, countries depend on each other economically uh, for a, a stable market, they voted to stay in the EU. And then the the more rural people and the older people voted to leave. And because, yeah, like those coal miners now, a uh, uh, similar situation, they want things to go back to the way it was uh, when they there was less globalism. Freedom. Yeah. So I think localism is the opposite of globalism. And, and there's a lot to say for becoming more local. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people have been left behind for sure, and I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah. It's a good thing I'm not a politician. I don't like it when we limit ourselves to this left-right window, 
just this one dimension and just discuss how far left should we go, how far right should we go, uh, what should be taxed, what shouldn't be, uh, how, how much um, regulation should there be. Because there, is, there are a lot more dimensions to discuss than just that one. Uh, for example, the whole understanding of economics is based on a model that might not even be true. <laughs> um, uh, from what I hear, Americans love Adam Smith and the invisible hand. And I think that's crap. I, I don't believe in an invisible hand that somehow the market is the best thing to um, represent the needs and desires of everyone at the same time. Because, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that a need for a market, or a desire for a market, I should say, arises from the belief that there is scarcity and that there is not enough resources for everyone. And so when the scarcer a resource is, like a material or a, I don't know, a, a job, um, the more people will pay for it. And there are some great dynamics that are kind of self-regulating, but I don't believe that this pure capitalism has ever existed. Just like we said earlier, pure socialism has never existed. And so I would love for there to be a better education for the general public on how um, economics works, um, that there is actually an abundance on this planet for everyone if we are smart about how we use it and, and divide it and distribute it. There doesn't need to be any fighting over how much should he get and how much should I get of the pie because there's actually more than we all need put together. Um, but there are some people who want a million times more than they will ever need in their life and they're addicted to collecting wealth and they have so much power over the development of the economy and the little people, even though they are the majority, don't have enough knowledge about what is going on and therefore they're not making use of the power they actually have over what's going on. That's my view. Yeah, I think that um, I don't know enough to push back too much. I think that I would, I would just make a couple of comments. One, I think that cronyism is the downfall of any system, right? When you use the system and manipulate the system to enrich yourself or your friends or those around you, um, that's a problem, right? And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, any of the isms that we've experienced in the past, none of them has been immune to it. Um, I, I will agree that, you know, I, I think there is plenty in the world, right? And I, I think that, you know, that, that when I read the debates, people will say, oh, well, you know, look at this country or that country, you know, and, and the thing that's always weird to me is that um, I, I think that motivations are great, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, if, if somebody's motivated to do something and there's an incentive to do that, you know, I, I think that the market, while problematic, you know, what can actually represent people better than you know, a centrally planned government, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I always wonder, okay, Venezuela, 
you know, went from being the richest country in South America to not being able to feed its people, right? It was the most oil rich and, you know, then they nationalized the wells and kicked out the for-profit, you know, the greedy oil producers and, and now their production has sunk tremendously. And I don't know what the cause and effect is totally, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it seems like that when there is a, a profit motive, um, you know, that, that, that bad ideas will fail absent cronyism. Yeah. Right? So yeah, you, what you're talking about is libertarianism, right? Uh, yes, I'm probably more market-based. I, I don't know that I would say that I'm an anarcho-capitalist yeah. per se, but I, I, I do think that um, when there is not force and people get to choose for themselves and they get to decide how to spend their money and make their choices, um, I think it can be powerful. Good. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this topic um, because I have so many thoughts on them, but I, I don't have anyone to, to talk to about who is open for my thoughts anyway. <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm really trying to understand libertarianism right now. I uh, agree that governments and big corporations will abuse their power um, and will, you know, create these, these crony connections to to help each other out or and if they can just help themselves out um and so they're they're really uh, greedy and, and egotistical um and it, and it and it is a big problem i think in the states right now i think that one of the most detestable things is that people leave or they go to congress either the house or the senate many of them right and they're average people or they're not extremely wealthy and then you know, some people have been able to make a career out of it and become fabulously wealthy via influence, right? Or they leave the House and the Senate after a while and then they go and work as a lobbyist or they get, you know, positions on corporate boards, you know, and and it's all um, due to whatever influence or fame they gained while in office, right? So Yeah, power corrupts, right? Yeah, so... Well, I don't, I don't know that it corrupt, but I mean, yes, theoretically it corrupts, right? I mean, you think about the sources of power, you know, or the types of power, economic power, political power, influential power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't like that, that people can profit off the government or profit off of their position in the government or their history in the government. Um, you know, I, I, as far as corporations, you know, I mean, there's, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, billions, maybe, I don't know, on collectively on lobbying, right? And, and campaigns, I mean, yeah. And campaigns. Yeah, I mean, as a shareholder, you know, in a public company, you know, say I own, if I were a shareholder, you know, I would wonder, okay, why is this company donating to a political party that, that I don't believe in? Or you know the sports platforms that I don't believe in, right? What what is why is that the corporation's money to to donate, mm-hmm. or are they buying influence, right? Or are they buying regulators, uh, or <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's it's uh, definitely a problem. The amount of money that 
sloshes. I mean, think about the 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 wealth of Washington D.C. and the surrounding area of Washington D.C. It's yeah. crazy. It's one of the most wealthy places in America, if not the wealthiest. Yeah, it's a careerist town. Um, people on the left will say that cronyism is built into capitalism, that there is no pure capitalism where people uh, adhere to the non-aggression principle, for example. Uh, but libertarians will say, no, capitalism is great as long as there is no cronyism. And then the same goes the other way. People on the right will say, um, totalitarianism is baked into socialism. And there is no pure socialism where people just want what's best for everyone. And they are incentivized by everyone being taken care of. And, and so I, I love that it goes both ways and that, that there is no clear uh, plus on, on either side. I think if you have something um, community-based, it needs to be voluntary. You know, people need to all agree that they will, that, that when someone is better off, he will donate more, I guess you could call it. And, you know, he will take care more of the people who are not able to take care of themselves because of illness or accident. But it needs to be voluntary because yes, I agree that uh, social programs should not be enforced by, I don't know, police or, you know, the financial system, the, the judicial system, whatever would, would uh, enforce it and execute the law. So does that mean we need to isolate all the people who want to live in a kibbutz should isolate and, and everyone else should, should fend for themselves because they believe if you do whatever is best for yourself, you're, you're automatically doing what's best for everyone else. I don't think we can live that separated. So I think that you bring up a good point and I, right now in America, I don't know what the feeling is in Germany, but um, in America, there is considerable discontent among people who feel like that the government is overreaching as far as, uh, or at least local and state governments overreaching as far as um, issuing um, executive orders, closing down businesses, enforcing social protocols, mm -hmm. you know, which, which violate, which, I don't know, which to a common, to, to a lot of common people are violating um, our constitutional rights. Yeah. To, right. So to gather, for example, right? to yes, together. So, I mean, the, the prime example is in Kentucky, um, people wanted to gather in their cars in the parking lot and hear a sermon on Easter Sunday yeah. and the governor forbade it, or I don't know if he repealed his order or what, but um, at any rate, you know, that's the right to worship and the right of, religious expression that, that America holds very, very dear, right? And so, the, and the right to assemble. And so people, um, you know, pretty mad, you know, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of people want to do, you know, they look at Sweden and they want to do what Sweden did. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, Sweden, as far as I can tell, um, people voluntarily, 
isolated socially or or at least um their own volition maintain some sort of social distance without closing everything down and um i don't know that's what a lot of a lot of people over here are saying that we should have done and i guess i guess time will tell what the right way yeah is. that's the whole other big topic that i hope to discuss uh in my next episode about the COVID pandemic, um, because I've also heard things that do not uh, fit with the official narrative. Um, but yeah, no, that, that is a good example for um, potential abuse of power. And uh, I heard that in Mexico, for example, people are just so, more, so much more relaxed, even though the government has decreed the same things as in most countries, people just don't trust the government as much they don't respect the police <laughs> there is still police and even military in part uh forbidding people from gathering or opening their stores but there's just a lot more pushback uh, from what i hear anyway i do i do get that there are protests in several places in america there is in berlin a little bit but those are then mocked in the media by saying oh those are just extreme right people and so, and so if you agree with what they're doing, then your extreme rights is the implication. Uh, yeah, it's, but, a little, it's, a, it's a little disturbing um, that a lot of the big platforms uh, like Google, Facebook, mm -hmm. Twitter are deplatforming de yep. alternate voices. And it's something that I... I go back and forth at, have you heard of Popper's Paradox? No. So Karl Popper was a, a philosopher, I guess. And the, the paradox is that with, and I'm probably going to butcher this, and so I should probably look it up and read it better, but the idea is that, you know, free speech, in order to be protected, sometimes you have to censor voices that would be harmful and ultimately take away the free speech. Hmm. So you have to, you know, enforce some some sense censorship to protect free speech overall. And and I I don't know what the line is or what you know what the what the appropriate amount of censorship is. A lot of people will point to unfortunately Hitler is the example everybody wants to go straight to. It's the lazy argument in America right how does it go uh, what's that how does the hitler argument go oh what, whatever you disagree with right like if whatever public official you disagree with or whatever platform you disagree with you know you call somebody a nazi or you call the oh. leader hitler okay. and so, you know people would say oh yeah you know you're just um uh goebbels here you know or the the media are just a bunch of goebbel followers Oh, right. You know, propaganda wanna, minister. Yeah. Yeah. They want to propagandize everything or censor everything. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a little crazy. But it is uh, an important topic. Uh, I follow several people on YouTube to get my news because I don't trust mainstream news. And they keep reporting about censorship being demonetized, shadow banned, deplatformed. And they all know about the alternative platforms. Uh, that cannot be shut down if they're based on blockchain, for example, or that just have less regulation than 
than the big ones, but the masses just won't switch to other platforms. Everyone's so stuck with YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that it's just really difficult to mobilize them. But I, I, I'm not blaming them. I, it's difficult to get a movement going. Yeah, I think part of it is, um, I think we all want to be seen as reasonable people, right? Everybody thinks that they're reasonable and logical and that people who disagree with them are not reasonable and illogical. And, and so I, I think that it's harmful when we um, try to ban things and bury them rather than let the market decide. And um, I, I guess the, the phrase is sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, if people do have racist or harmful or bad ideas, you know, let them let them put it in the public square. Yeah. And, you know, let that will be more effective at crushing the movements than, you know, trying to ban them and stomp them out, I think. Right. I, I like the saying um, the the solution to bad speech is not less speech, but more speech. You know, make the let the statistics show that that is actually a minority stance and it's not representative, but, but the news loves to pick out the extremes um, and make everyone think that people are a lot more polarized than they are. Um, the, only, yeah, I think the only example that comes to my mind where I thought censorship was a good thing was the mass murder in New Zealand and this um, manifesto video message by the murderer. I didn't watch it. I heard people got nightmares from watching it. Um, and so it's probably good that that does not get spread just because it's disturbing. I don't think it, it could move other people to mimic him. So I don't think we're that frail and, and um, influenceable, what's the word, gullible, that we just become extreme as soon as we see other people doing extreme things. But some things are just, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm too sensitive, but some things should not become part of the, the mainstream consciousness. But then again, who's to decide, right? Um, when Facebook started this, this coalition of, I don't know, 20 authoritative news sources that are to decide what is fake news and what isn't, I thought Facebook is the last one, it <laughs> should be the last one to decide <laughs> what the people do get to see and don't. And I also always think of Fahrenheit 451 because we are going in that direction, even though it's slow and, and we are frogs boiling in a pot. We, we don't realize how much we're, uh, the, the information that reaches us is controlled and, and censored and manipulated. So there is yeah. a huge, a real danger there. Yeah, I mean, as, as some, I like the jokes when people talk about you know, like Fahrenheit 451 and um, 1984 mm -hmm. as prophetic warnings rather than rather than playbooks, how to implement that type of society, right? <laughs> yeah. That seems like it seems like what's happening, and and you know, Animal Farm seems just as applicable today as it did. I don't know, 75 years ago, or however long ago it was written. You know, same with 1984. Same with Fahrenheit 451. Uh, you know, these are ideas that are old. Right. And there's so little modern material on topics like this because we're all just 
watching Netflix and chilling. Just, yeah, we're just distracted. We we hate people with red hats, for example, and stuff like that. <laughs> and actually, we have so much more in common than we believe. And it, it, I love this this very simplified version of it. We should not fight left against right, but bottom against top, because it's there's more of a class issue than a left right issue. And, and as soon as the majority um, see, we don't even have modern terms for it. We have to go all the way back to bourgeoisie and proletariat to express these <laughs> ideas, right? The 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 majority the and the proles, yeah. The majority has the power, but they're subdued because they work all day, and then they get home and just exhausted and can't even organize, mobilize, discuss, and think about these things, and recognize the power that they have, and they just trust the the powerful um, structures, whether they're economical or, or uh, political. And on the other hand, they just don't have the, the time and the energy to take care of these things. So there's just so few people, and we call them activists usually when they are so active that they really want to do something about it, but there are so few. Yeah. Have you, have you ever heard of Ayn Rand? Have you heard of Atlas Shrugged? No. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating book. I, I've thought of, about it a couple of times while we've been speaking. Um, uh, I mean, definitely there are some fair critiques of her work. So she was a lady who grew up in Russia and then moved to America. And um, apparently she hated, after after the war, President Truman, after Roosevelt died, President Truman came along, and that was, um, you know, really the beginning of the Soviet U.S. Mm, Cold uh, War. Yeah, Cold War, you know, and the ideology, which way are we going to go? But she wrote, um, she wrote a few books, but her philosophy, I believe, was objectivism, and that um, was incorporating, um, you know, a strong individualistic um, economic ideal and a, a freedom and a liberty and um, I guess atheism and, and sexuality, uninhibited sexuality were the, or sexual expression rather, mm -hmm. I guess were maybe the tentpoles of, of that, of that idea. But anyway, the movie or the book Atlas Shrugged, um, the, the people who were the business people or Class. I, yeah, not just the business people, but the but the people who were the risk takers and the people who were the main producers, they went on strike and just disappeared. So, you know, the um, like the, the railroad magnet, um, the the oil magnet, um, you know, notable composers, notable artists, notable judges, uh, they all left society. And it, it just went, to, it started to crumble because the, the, I mean, and granted, like I said, there, there are some fair and withering critiques, um, but it was just the idea that um, once you remove the profit motive, you know, and it becomes a, a matter of, um, you know, taking from others against their will or distributing it for the good of people, you know, in more of an authoritarian 
you know, we know what's better and we know what's good. And um, anyway, society crumbled without, without so this, the- This is an argument for hierarchy, right? For a power hierarchy and that some personalities are meant to be leaders and some are meant to be followers? Um, it's, it, it's more of an argument for strong, um, independent capitalism. Individualism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that there is a reason, you know, we shouldn't hate the rich people. Um, you know, we shouldn't despise them because they got rich because they, you know, they struck they, gold. Well, they struck gold or they were industrious or, mm -hmm. You know, they were inventors or they, you know, sacrificed or risked more, you know, and they are the ones who actually created the jobs. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the hourly workers who were benefiting society as much as, you know, the, the creators, the creator class. And so I, I think maybe if we looked at it in today's world, we would say, oh, you know, really the genius of Facebook or the the importance of Facebook or the power of Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg. You know, he was the visionary. He was the one that took the risk. He's the one that started up whatever, you know, not their lowest employees. You know, it shouldn't, you know, the lowest employees weren't the ones that created Facebook and they weren't the ones that saw the community or, you know what I mean? Um, yes, but I don't agree with it. That's, that's why I'm just listening right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whether, like I said, not, 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 I'm not advocating it, but it's, um, like I said, the thoughts have crossed my mind a couple of times while we've been talking. Yeah, I'll, I'll look that book up later. Yeah, um, it's, it's a lot of people make fun of it. I mean, it's kind of a, a litmus test, right? If you're a libertarian, you love the book, <laughs> you know, and you love everything about it. If you're um, more socially minded, more communally minded, uh, you hate everything about the book and you think that it's childish. Have you also heard that libertarians love uh, cryptocurrency? Yes. Because it, uh, it makes um, finances totally different. Uh, it takes away the need for banks, uh, especially central banks. And I mean, just having a, a digital wallet on your smartphone is like having a bank account. So uh, you don't, everyone can be part of the market. You don't need to be accredited. Um, those are some of the nice uh, financial things about it. And, um, and they, just, hmm? nobody knows how you spend your money. Yeah, yeah, there's more privacy. Cash. You have more control over your finances. Um, there's less oversight. I mean, obviously people who, who think there's a need for oversight will say oh but it's unregulated and so everyone can become a pirate <laughs> yeah. but but i believe I, I do believe that that if we trust people more to make their own decisions that it won't turn out as bad as you think and that the people with the oversight right now are also just people and so they're corruptible and just in towards the end here i want to bring up this last point which is still kind of futuristic but it's something that I'm hoping to see in the future. Um, and that is, you could call it uh, decentralized planning. So the, one of the revolutionary things about blockchain is the decentralization. 
um, because you don't need, so centralized financial systems would be something like Libra, um, where a company is the issuer and, and essentially the owner of the currency. Um, but with decentralized uh, currencies like Bitcoin, you um, just, nobody owns the currency and it, it just comes from the, the miners who provide the service for the network to, to keep running. And they're incentivized by, by the reward, which is having this month, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I read that. I don't know what that means, though. <laughs> it means that it's less uh, profitable to be a miner. Um, oh, gotcha. Yeah, by half. And so the small miners running out of their garage or so will no longer make a profit. They'll make a loss if, if they keep mining. So uh, people are looking for cheaper energy, uh, cheaper electricity to keep their computers running. Um, anyway, that, that's going to deepen it. But the the nice thing I would say is um, the de decentralization. There's no longer a need for trust. So right now, the trust in the US dollar is sinking because the Fed is just printing trillions of dollars without anyone being asked about it. Well, Congress voted on it, but they don't even understand what the Fed is doing. I mean, they interview them, but then people like, um, who's the, the head of the Fed called? Bernanke, Bernanke yeah. just, just tells one lie after the other and, and it sounds scientific and it sounds plausible, but in the end, the, the individual citizens and small um, uh, businesses don't get any of the new money. Uh, it's, it just goes towards the top so that the, the wealth distribution is skewed so much more even. And so this, this is what could lead to hyperinflation. I'm just using a, a modern example right now. Obviously, lots of places have suffered through that. And so the value of money comes from trust or faith in the value of the currency. And when people are responsible for that to remain successful, then there is always reason not to trust them. And uh, cryptocurrencies are independent of people and people's decision. And so I'm hoping that there can be more... Um, or less cronyism, for example, <laughs> in the future. Uh, and the planning part, I think, is, is still, uh, you know, th there is something good to, to say for um, social systems, uh, social programs for people. And the, the bad thing about this socialism, what we said, is when that power gets abused. But if no person lies behind how things go, how it's a, it's a consensus of everyone, then I think we can have the best of both worlds of uh, you know individualism and uh, collectivism. But as you can tell, it's, it's very vague right now. It's just a few thoughts glued together, how I think we could make progress. Well, I'll vote for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I don't even know if, if, a, if a one world society would be better than, than more like smaller ones, like the way we used to be when our countries didn't overlap so much or when, when tribes didn't overlap so much. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it, I will say this. It's, I don't, I don't know if it makes sense. You know, I, I think that people are different. I, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, we think differently. Our language helps us think differently. Our, our surroundings make us think differently. Mm -hmm. You know, when we live in population, dense populated, densely populated areas versus sparsely populated areas, 
I think we think differently. You know, I always, I always marvel. Uh, granted, I got, I got to Germany sixty years after, after the war, but I was like, man, Germans are just like Americans, hmm. more so than, than maybe the French are. Right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Chinese, but okay. <laughs> well, no, no. What I what I'm saying is it's it's ironic that, you know, in in World War II, America was fighting Germany, and yet, you know, culturally, um, you know, the the, the Germans seemed more like Americans than other places that I've been, right? Uh, other traditional allies in the past, or maybe during World War II, but. Yeah, it, if, if, if you're up for it, another time we should maybe talk about war and how it's just um, a big business deal and millions yeah. of pawns are playing along because they're lied to and become angry at each other while rich people are getting richer. Yes, it's, uh, so we had a President Eisenhower. He was the five-star general of the American forces during World War II. He oversaw the the invasion of, or not the invade the um, D Day, mm -hmm. you know the invasion and the the European theater, and he ran for president or he became president after World War II, and he gave a speech when he left office, and it was it was called Beware of the um, Military Industrial Complex. Yes, so you know this one already. Yeah. But it's uh, it's quite the warning. Yeah, pretty pretty intense. How does a president having... become so honest? <laughs> Did he get assassinated as well? <laughs> no, he wasn't assassinated. But I mean, yeah, that's definitely. You know, if, uh, if if we can find another time, uh, we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be fascinating. We should we should talk again. Um, You know, there are people still to this day who believe that Kennedy, that President Kennedy, um, he was the last assassinated president that we had. Um, oh, the last one. Okay. In the 60s. Yeah. 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 He was also special. He did some amazing things that they needed to get rid of him. Yeah. So like, like you said, a lot of people, if, if some, if I bet if you were to ask Americans, if there's one conspiracy theory that you believe, I think that the Kennedy assassination would probably be the one that everybody believes. It was an inside job. And not Oswald? Yeah, well, yeah. But not that he acted alone, but... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send you a link to a documentary that is pretty good at, at showing how it was a dozen people shooting at him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And a lot of them failed. <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy. Um, I need, I want to learn more about it because yeah, a lot went on that day. Um, so there was a, there was a lot going on with Cuba at the time mm -hmm. and, you know, President Kennedy's reluctance to use force or to invade or, you know, to escalate the war with the Soviet Union. But... No, it's a good example, but we, we could probably go through all the wars in the last hundred years and show how the, They're, they're always motivated by economical uh, purposes, never religion or, or hatred, so. Yeah, I was surprised when I lived in Russia 
you know, I, I mean, granted Russians, they saw the world differently, but by and large, the average Russian, I think, and the average American, none of them wanted war, yeah. right? I mean, it's pretty clear to me, even as a 20-year-old, that both sides have been propagandized mm -hmm. significantly and that the truth was not what, not what the narrative was. And the propaganda yeah. against Russians was so strong that I believe this, this knee-jerk reaction against, oh, social programs lead to uh, authoritarianism and, and totalitarianism comes from this age of propaganda all the way from the, from the 60s through the 80s, that people were told what to do when a nuclear bomb comes from Russia and stuff like that, and that the Democrats can just blame the Russians on any mistake that they make inside their own party and stuff like that. Yes. Funny how Russia's always... The boogeyman. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say that Russia, I don't know what their form of government is now, but when I lived there, it was pretty clear that whatever the titular head of the government was, the mafia ran everything. <laughs> you know, and so when you brought up Mexico earlier, I was like, yeah, the... There's a president and there's a police force, but the mafia, not the mafia, the, uh, the cartels have yeah. all the power. Right. Yeah, it's called inverted totalitarianism, right? When um, other combinations like a mafia or, or corporations have power over the government so that the governments are actually their puppets and political debates are theater to keep people thinking that they're working on behalf of everyone. That's oversimplifying it, but <laughs> this view helps me make sense of things in the world. So American corporatism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm glad we could talk about all these different points. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of structure to it, but we did cover uh, most of what I wanted to get to. Uh, but that's the way my podcast is. It's just organic. Just We didn't really speak about personal stories uh, in Russia or, or Germany. Just opinions, perspectives, but that's good. That's, that's where it should start. And, and the commonalities, like you said, the people on the ground have so much more in common that you would believe, uh, given the propaganda in the media. Yeah, well, let's talk again sometime. I, Sunday afternoons are usually a good time for me, so. All right. We'll talk again and um, we will explore our ideas further. I look forward to it, thank you. Thanks, William. All is good to man. <laughs>